Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I am delighted to be joined by Philip Smith. Philip is an artist whose works are in the permanent collection of the Whitney Museum of Art, the Dallas Museum of Art, and the Detroit Institute of Art, among others. He's the author of the spellbinding book, Walking Through Walls, which is a profound memoir of his life with his decorator father, who realizes he has the power to talk to the dead and heal the sick. You're going to get such great insights from Philip in this episode. You'll hear me say this during the episode, but I'm going to reiterate it here, or is it pre-reiterate? <laughs> but please go read his book. If you love listening to the content on Meditation Conversation, this book is really for you. Philip shares some of the wonderful stories from the book, as well as things that you won't find in there. And there's so much more you're going to get by reading it. It's just delightful, and it should be required reading for anyone interested in spiritual development, particularly those of you who are interested in the healing arts. So if you want to go deeper into expanding your own consciousness, join me January 12th through the 14th on the sacred ground of the Tibetan-Mongolian Buddhist Cultural Center in beautiful Bloomington, Indiana. I'm hosting a retreat to help you expand your consciousness and deepen your connection to your higher self. We'll have meditations, workshops, sound experiences, breath work, and more. Check out the info at karagoodwin.com and click retreat for the details. And enter code EARLYBIRD to get $58 off. Stressed out? Can't sleep? True Vegas got you covered. Say goodbye to restless nights and hello to inner peace with this simple but powerful handheld vagus nerve stimulation therapy. It only takes two minutes, morning and night, to reclaim your peace of mind. This amazing device stimulates the vagus nerve to improve overall health and wellness. Your vagus nerve plays a crucial role in regulating various bodily functions, including heart rate, digestion, stress, inflammation, and mood. True Vega delivers gentle energy impulses to the vagus nerve, leading to a wide range of wellness benefits, including reducing stress, increasing focus, and improving mood and sleep. This technology is the most clinically studied and tested vagus nerve therapy available. It's a drug-free and easy way to improve your wellness. Use code MCPOD for $15 off your order. That's M-C-P-O-D for $15 off. Check out truevega.com, T-R-U-V-A-G-A.com. And if you're as excited about what you learn in this episode as I am, please send it on to anyone in your life who would also be interested in it. So thank you so much and enjoy this episode. So welcome, Philip. It's such an honor to speak with you. And Carol, thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm very touched by it. Thank you. Well, it really, it's really an honor. And just to clue the listeners in, this is actually the second time I've been able to talk to you because the first time we both had incredible audio issues. <laughs> and it was really funny because they, we had issues on your side and you had just gotten a new internet connection. And then we started 
having them on my side too. And listeners probably know that when the frequency gets high, it can affect technology. And But it ended up being almost unusable, what we had. So we decided to do it again, which is such a joy for me to get to spend time with you again. But it's we'll, we'll see. Fingers crossed we can release this one. <laughs> okay. We'll do a great job. <laughs> yeah. So... I can't tell you how much I loved your book. I loved, loved, loved Walking Through Walls. I highly encourage anybody who is listening to this, run out and get this book. It is fascinating. It's hilarious. It's mystical. And it's consciousness expanding. Can you give us a little overview about the premise of the book? Sure. Let me start by saying, uh, with all those wonderful adjectives, I think it's important that the readers know this is all true. It was really taken from my father's audio tapes and his writings. And in fact, just before it came out, the lawyers for Simon & Schuster called me in and they said, wow, this book's pretty out there. We don't want to publish anything that's not true. So I said, I went in with a box of tapes and a a bunch of papers and notes. I said, Point to a page and I'll show you where it came from. And we spent a couple hours verifying everything. So I think that's actually very important for the readers to know that this is really a pretty accurate account of what happened. So basically, I grew up in Miami, which people think Miami is this glamorous go-go city. Back then, it was sort of the deep south and it was, it was a sleepy town. I mean, no one, no one lived in Miami. In fact, if you, uh, like in the 60s, if you looked at the national news and they did a weather report, they would show the state of Florida, but Miami wasn't even on the map. They just, it just didn't count back then. So that's kind of the setting. My father was, uh, both my parents moved down from New York and my father was an interior designer and kind of a, a glamorous one. I mean, he, he worked for the president of Cuba, the president of Haiti and Dean Martin. And he was kidnapped by him. <laughs> That's right. He was held hostage because he was hired. Vice President Nixon was coming for a state visit. And they called my father uh, and they wanted to fix up the, the, the main entranceway for the presidential visit. And the, I guess you call it the first lady of Haiti, loved what he did so much. She said, you're staying. He said, no, I got to go home to my wife and kid. She said, no, you're staying. And they came in with machine guns and they just held him. I think it's the first time a decorator's ever been under house arrest um, <laughs> because they wanted more decoration. And he never Which did. is so wild, but it's true. Yeah, it's bizarre. And my father then broke out of he climbed out the second floor window and took a donkey to the airport and got on the plane. And my mom had gone to the State Department to try and get help. They, they just didn't care. They were like, a decorator in Haiti, who cares? We're not going to send a rescue mission for this guy. But he did get home. So he, here he is, you know, dealing with wealthy people, glamorous people, a lot of Palm Beach people. And then in the 60s, he suddenly discovers through a series of incidents that are described in the book, that he can talk to the dead and heal the sick. And people started coming into his design studio with all kinds of, you know, everything from glaucoma to leukemia to their baby was deaf. And he would 
start to heal them for free. And this was, this set him on the path that this is what he was called to do. As you can imagine, this is not exactly what my mother signed on for because our house turned into a kind of Lord's where people would be banging on the door at three o'clock in the morning. My sister just had a heart attack or my husband's in the hospital. Can you help, et cetera? My father was more than happy to help. I mean, he loved experiencing this gift and seeing what he could do. I mean, it was kind of remarkable. You know, this is in the mid-60s, and America was very conservative. There was no organic food. There was no Barnes & Noble with a metaphysical department. There was no vitamin shops, none of that. So here's this guy that's doing miraculous cures. And of course, like today, there are people who are saying, you're the devil, you're a communist. And police would sometimes, if he'd stop at a car accident and he just knew someone was really in mortal danger and go over and start to help them. At that point, he was doing laying on of hands. And the police would come and say, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm, you know, I'm healing this person. And the cops were redneck cops back then. It was very Southern. And they'd say, hell no, you're stealing that guy's wallet and you're under arrest. And they would just, you know, he would go to jail and somehow miraculously charges would get dropped and he would be there a couple hours and he would come home. That's the beginning. And then it just took off from there. When I say he talked to the dead, he would have daily communication with with people and these dead guys would bring more and more of their friends over and say, hey, you got to meet Lou. And so they were, I'm saying that in a humorous way, but. But the, you mean like on the other side? On the so other his, side. The contacts that he had. So Chanderson was one of his guys right. and Arthur Ford. Correct. His primary ones. But then you mean they would then bring spirit or other buddies over it's, right hey you know you're a kidney doctor lou needs a kidney you're an eye doctor lou needs that and so every morning at 4 a.m he would get up and he would start talking to these these spirits and there were female spirits too i don't there was one named crystal there were various ones that came through uh, of course there's one named crystal yes <laughs> Who, who, Why not? <laughs> that's like the best spirit name. If, um, if you're going to have a spirit helping you, it should be named Crystal. Yes. <laughs> so they were all, they were from all nationalities, denominations. Time uh, periods. Yes. They were. Chander was like the 600s or something. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, something like that. He Centuries was ago. Crystal was an African-American woman from the 30s. Um. Arthur Ford, that's another story we can get into, was actually a medium who died in the 70s, a real person. And he knew him. Yes. He was close with him in the physical. In in lifetime. So these spirits would come in and up the game and teach him new healing methods. And they got more and more esoteric. And it's not unlike, you know, we used to have books and records. We used to have physical ways that we communicated ideas. And those have become digitized and more ephemeral. So now there's, you read a book on a phone, whoever thought of that, or music comes out of your phone or, or why. Or you listen to a book yeah, on correct. your phone or, yeah. I never thought about that. That's yeah, kind of a dematerialization. Oh, and yeah. So his healing methods, I think, went that route. And they became 
more sublime, I guess is the word. He, there's one area that I don't know what they are. And when he died, he had what was called like a sender. And it was a little wood platform with copper wire, wire on it, a copper coil and magnets. And in between all this, were these like index cards with these like mandala pictures, kind of what's behind you, that were drawn and there were codes on it. And he would change these every day. That is the one thing that he did I don't, I actually don't know, at least I haven't found anything that explained what they were. And he was getting so far into the ether um, and he was working with very very subtle energies toward the end of his life he was able to in some ways control the weather he could move hurricanes away from the state of florida when they were coming at it he uh, i think there's notes where he would sometimes influence governments uh, that were headed in a really dangerous direction so this what he was doing uh, really evolved, but primarily he started out, like most people, as they said, with hands-on healing. And he used a pendulum as a way to verify his results. So, for example, if someone called and they called from California and said, my mother's not well, the doctors think she might have kidney disease or they might think she has cancer. They, you know, they did not have MRIs. They didn't have really ultrasound back then. They didn't have any of those diagnostic tests. So diagnosis was a lot of guesswork or you relied on an x-ray or they did exploratory surgery. If they wanted to see if you had cancer, they just cut you open and took you inside and said, oh, there's a tumor or no, we didn't find a tumor. But they couldn't really tell at that point whether tumor cells were circulating and about to metastasize. They couldn't, they couldn't, there were no blood tests for that. And, he, and my father could tell all that with this pendulum. He would hold it over a, an anatomy chart and it would sort of lead him to the part of the body. And I guess the spirits were implanting ideas in his brain. And he would say, okay, is this a tumor? And pendulum would answer, yes. Where is the tumor located? Is it the lungs? Is it the heart? Is Where is it? It would indicate that it would tell him how long it's been there, the size. He was a very accurate diagnostician, which is different from most healers. I mean, one of the questions I've had since the book came out is, can you recommend a, a healer for a loved one? And I haven't met anybody that really could do this. There are people who can transfer energy, but it's broad spectrum energy send you healing energy as opposed to here's the tumor it's right here we're gonna we're gonna send it's almost like a laser to shrink that tumor so it was it's been a very different kind of healing that like i said i haven't found anybody else i hope there are people out there doing it are there people carrying on his legacy because he did have some students so in your in the book you know there are stories of them being in your living room and people, you know, and they're learning the pendulum and all of that. So are there people who have carried on his legacy in any form that you're aware of? 
Not to my knowledge. I do, uh, when the book came out, I did a reading down here. And I was really taken aback. This woman stood up and said, I studied with your father when she was in university, University of Miami. Her mother said, you've got to go study with this guy. She had no idea why. And she studied with my father. I don't know how long. And she took his course. He was teaching. It was like three people. People were not, he was too weird. It, people were not interested. Today he would have, you know, he'd fill Madison Square Garden <laughs> with people yes. being interested. It's a very different time. He was a pioneer. Yeah. Yes, there's good things about being a pioneer and there's not. Because if you're too early, you miss the opportunity to really make a large influence. And, you know, timing has to be right. But his time was his time. She is a very spiritual person. She, I don't know that she does active healing. I think that the lessons she learned have changed her life and had her lead a more conscious life and be very interested in consciousness. I think she's working on a documentary of consciousness, but I don't think she's active with healing, which is a shame. Yeah. It's, it's interesting through walking through walls you open a portal to Lou, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, that was my experience. And I know that it's been other people who I've recommended the book to, or who have recommended it to me, where this connection seems to open up and the, what we're able to get from the teachings that opens up as well. And my hope is that and here's your nudge that <laughs> there will be more, there will be a book too, and, and perhaps some more specific things about his methods or his work. Because even just reading about it, even if it's not an instructional, because like I said, this book is funny, it's a narrative, it's not really an instructional, like there are some tips about things that, that he said to one thing that comes to mind is when you're um, working with the pendulum and how to make sure that you're getting into the highest frequency and, and how to work with that. But it's not really a, like, okay, step one is this. And then to be able to zero in on which part of the body, you know, it's, it alludes to how he could do it, but it doesn't, it's not instructional, but it does open up I mean, I could feel things energetically like opening up where it's some kind of like connection, remembrance, possibility, just putting the possibility out there that the knowledge, the wisdom that he has, you know, different levels of people, it will resonate in different ways, but that is powerful. Just, I mean, it's like hearing stories of miracles and how that just shifts your consciousness to be able to understand, oh, things are possible that I didn't even know are possible or on some level a remembrance of that. So it's just interesting. I wonder like through your work with this book, like how many people are able to open themselves up and feel that guidance or, or be able to build a connection with Lou um, or with Chander and or Chanderson and or Arthur Ford to be like, oh, there are these benevolent beings who want to help and they know how to work with human consciousness and they know how to help somebody be a conduit for this kind of energy. And 
things like that. That's really, I'm happy to hear this and it's not the first time I've heard it. I've heard it a lot, lots of emails from people who say Lou has appeared to me or Lou is helping me. And there's a couple things that in this, these daily messages, I haven't been to the website in a while, so I don't remember. I thought I'd posted some of them, but there are two things. One is that, which will help explain what you're saying. Um, my, Chandrasen was a, was a monk, monk that my father, he was the master physician. My father, he'd call him in to help diagnose or treat. And my father found that, I'd heard that Chandrasen was also working with other people. So he said to Chandrasen, how is it that you're helping me heal someone, but at the same time, you're helping someone in, heal in Nebraska or in Spain? How can you be in all these places at once? And in this message, I hope I posted it, I'll check. Chandrasen says, I'm, my consciousness is like the ocean. If you look at the ocean and then you go over to the ocean, and you take a cup and you scoop out a cup of water from the ocean, there's the ocean, and the ocean's also in this cup. And then you take this cup and you pour some water in here. Here's the ocean, here's the ocean, and there's the ocean. He says, my consciousness is like that. It's infinite, and it can go anywhere. And I, I don't think you have to be dead to do that. I think we can all do that and I think that our consciousness and that explains how people know when you know when someone died or when someone's going to call or the phone rings and says I was just going to call you how, how you know we put this label on it oh yeah that's ESP or precognition that's a very sweet cute label it's really that energetically we are connecting with various people or when people walk into a room or know something bad's going to happen and they get out of there fast and then something bad happens. That is our consciousness. And because we're in the physical body, I think we tend to hang on to it and think our consciousness is right here and keep it locked in. And I think what, I think in the coming years, what we all have to do is loosen up and get that consciousness out there. And we need to start connecting um, and connecting on a very high level, because obviously dark energies can connect and can come together and create powerful dark forces. But I think people, especially all your listeners, I'm sorry to put this on them, but they all have a responsibility to enlarge and to expand and to, to be the best they can be that will affect other people. There's no doubt that if I walked into the supermarket and I had a really grouchy cashier and she threw the change at me, generally I'm not going to walk away from that unscathed. I'm going to go out and pump my horn at someone in the car and I'm just passing along that bad energy. And if you're conscious, you're going to stop right there, have compassion. That woman's been there all day. She's had everybody yell at her. She's having a really hard time. And you're not going to take it personally and tighten up and say, the hell with you. Uh, you're going to just say, listen, thanks. I appreciate your help. And you'll move on and not take it out on the next person and stop that cycle. That's, 
one of our jobs right now. And it's a simple job. Well, I shouldn't say it's so simple. I think people have a hard time with that. But anyway, consciousness, my father is there. And the other thing, I'll just, another message I'll tell you, I think I mentioned this last time, is my father asked, I think it was Arthur Ford, how come you know what I'm doing and you're dead and I don't see you, but you know what I'm doing, but I don't see you. And the way he explained it, he says, you know those old cop movies, detective movies from the 30s, the black and white movies, they would get the perpetrator in the station house and they would be questioning him and the lieutenant was behind the two-way mirror. He saw everything that was going on, but the perpetrator did not see the lieutenant standing there. He said, that's how we are. We're right next to you. We're right here. You just can't see us. And I, again, I think I told this story. I was lighting a memorial candle every year for my father. And this year, I said, I hadn't heard from him in a while. I said, gee, it would be really nice if you came and visited me once in a while. And the response was immediate. He said, I'm always here. And, and how did you receive that? I heard it. And it wasn't, it was not my voice. And I think a lot of people who are trying to receive information, not necessarily message, but information, they will often distrust the voice they hear because, oh, that's me talking to myself. And it might be, but over time, if you, instead of constantly dismissing that voice, like if you're going down a road and usually you turn right, but the voice keeps telling you turn left and you don't, and you make that right turn and then you have a massive traffic jam that takes you two hours to get home, next time you might say, you know what, I'm gonna try turning left here. And what I would suggest is people give it a shot. When the voice comes in, don't distrust it. And if it's not gonna cost you anything or it's not harmful or risky, go with it and see, open up that pathway and see if you can start receiving information. Cause it's all there just like our phones receive information. Our TV turns it on, receives signals. We're receiving, those signals are out there. We're receiving them all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I, I love putting that together with the high vibration that you talked about in the beginning or just before that, because you talked about the dark forces that are also able to connect. So being conscientious about increasing our frequency and our vibrations so that we, because we want to be receiving those messages that are the genuine light, high frequency messages. So those things go together because everything might be trying to connect with us. And we want to make sure like, is this the influence that I want to be under? <laughs> you know? That's a very good point. And I forgot to mention, as you go up the totem pole, so to speak, or the vibrational ladder, you become brighter. And if you're brighter, you can become a target. And they, the dark forces, um, love to suck energy because that they need that to survive. So I know I sound crazy when I'm saying all this, but it's not to me, but I appreciate that you're saying this because I likewise, I'm like, good, somebody say it. <laughs> yeah. So you become brighter and more of a, you know, this is why like when they go into battle, they wear camouflage. We've dropped our camouflage at that point and we're just beaming light and if you want to be a target here we are so it's always important to question when you're getting information is this for the highest good and if 
no, then just walk away. And that applies, it's a very simple phrase my father used, and it applies to everything, that if you're, you can't decide on something, you ask if it's for the highest good. And that will always be the quickest, easiest guide of where to go and how to move forward or not move forward. Mm, I love that. And then you talk about, you know, we receive those messages in one way that you described it as you heard it. You know, but there might be a felt sensation. A lot of times that's how it yeah. comes through for me is like, a, I can feel like, do I feel like an upliftment or a, oh, like a yes? Over time, you start to learn what is a yes or like mm-hmm. a sinking feeling or a contracting or like your stomach hurts or something. And that's for me, like, no, but we're getting all kinds of signals from this human technology, whether it's sound, visual, feeling. Sometimes I've heard, I've smelled things mm-hmm. that I very rare for me, but smell and taste, those tend to come in at the same time. But another way that, that you're, that this book came in and infiltrated my consciousness <laughs> um, was in the dream state. Mm. And um, something that you were talking about reminded me when you're talking about like dark energy and the influence of dark energy, your father, I mean, please, everybody, please go read this book. Please read this book. It is just so delightful, but there's so much in there. One of the things that you, one of the stories you shared is about exorcism. So Lou did exorcisms. He did everything. (laughs) He did everything with his consciousness. But, and again, although the story that you told in the book was fascinating, it was practical. And I had a dream after I finished reading this book from this chapter on exorcism, well, it wasn't like right after reading that, it was a while later. And I dreamt that there was a little girl who was possessed and I used somehow, it was so much in my consciousness that in the dream state, I was able to recall what Lou had done to exorcise this demon. So I was making the sign of the cross I'm with my hand and I was commanding in the name of Jesus Christ that the spirit leave now and go into the light. I can't remember now, but I was so confident. I was saying it, I was being it, and I was driving this possession out of her. And it was very interesting because I had this outside perspective of her watching this little girl say it's leaving it's leaving and but I also could feel that it was leaving out of the top of her head so I was watching her say it's leaving it's leaving and I'm feeling it's leaving and and actually getting that sense of it leaving out of the top of the head and I woke up shortly after and I was like oh my god that was so real and surreal (laughs) that I could, I mean, I have not, I know very little about exorcism. I have not studied it. I have not, I mean, like that was the walking through walls was the most instruction I've ever gotten on it. And it, again, this is not an instruction manual. So it wasn't like, here's your step-by-step guide, but it was like Lou moving through me in the dream state with Christ, you know, getting this exercising this demon. So interesting. It's just, I don't have a question about that. I just, (laughs) that just came back to me was you were talking about negative forces and 
It's so fascinating. So this feels to me while you were telling the story that this actually happened, but in another dimension and you were doing this work. I don't, it doesn't feel to me because how long ago did you have this dream? Maybe two months ago. And here you remember it very clearly. Very clearly. What I've learned, for example, with when my parents will come and see me in a dream and I usually wake up afterwards and that dream is really crystal clear, vivid. Those are real communications as opposed to a dream that kind of feels like uh, there was a penguin in a sports car and he was playing tennis. What is this? But when it's real like that and you remember it and it's clear, those are from what I understand, real experiences and you doing this in another dimension. So it was good practice. <laughs> yes. But yeah, nice. that, that's, that should be taken very seriously. And this idea of dark forces, people think, oh my God, this is the exorcist. But if you think about it, and we as humans, we're, we think we're just like there's a lot of us and we're just people. We're miracles. We are miracles. Our hearts right now are beating, I don't know, 65 beats a minute. You don't have a battery in. I don't have a battery in. We're not plugged into anything. And our hearts have been beating a really long time. And what fuel did I give it today? I gave him some yogurt, fruit, and a cup of tea. And it's still working on that. And my eyes are seeing and my brain is able to move my mouth and talk to you and in a fairly articulate way. So we are miracles. And why wouldn't a kind of dysfunctional energy want to log on to us and go for a ride? And that's what parasites do. And that's what, how parasites attack food or our body or our cells. So... Spiritual energy is the same thing. And that's why we have to keep ourselves fairly clean, like brushing your teeth every day. I think there is a kind of spiritual hygiene that we do need to do and, and be very clear. I think it's very hard for young people, but to remove yourself from people or situations that are just energetically negative because... They will infect you. They are like a virus. And it is important. I think most people go through life and it's normal and, you know, they have good days, bad days. But you are and your audience and many people are working to get up there and work at another level because we're meant to operate at another level, a better level. And all the stupidity that that daily life entails is such a waste of our precious time because we are here to really learn and experience and manifest. And if we're just, you know, driving to work and here's the accounting and, oh, yeah, I fixed the car. Even if you're fixing cars or doing accounting, there is, and I think the Japanese are very good at this, there's a Zen in doing it with consciousness and doing it with awareness and doing it with a very good energy and being proud of the work you're doing. And that is a feedback loop for ourselves and for others. Mm. It's a constant struggle to, to 
to be on the path and to search. Yeah. But it's, it's infinitely worth it because you, there are moments you just experience life like, geez, this is magic. Yeah. I was on a trip recently and we were in Norway and we took a boat ride down the fjords, which are huge mountains with a river between it. I've been all over. I've seen a lot of things from Egypt to Burma and South America. And I had this feeling on the boat. I thought, I am so lucky that I'm alive as a human to experience this because I was just in awe of the nature. And that's what, you know, a lot of people were sleeping on the boat or they were on their phone during the boat. And I thought, do you know what you're looking at? Wake up. And I think the goal of all of us should be to really wake up. I love that. And you know, talking about that increase of frequency and consciousness, toward the end of his life, your father started tracking vibration, which blows my mind because we're, we're starting to get there. We're there in the spiritual community. People talk about vibration and frequency, but mainstream still is not there. And, and that still puts a lot of people off. It's like, oh, you're talking about vibration frequency. Now you're talking about the imagination and it's not real and that's not, you know, whatever. But again, like your dad was doing this in the 70s. Can you talk a little bit about how he was tracking that? Yeah. And I think that, again, it's we, it, oh, people would distrust my father because he could see into the body. But now we have a, $2 million MRI that can see in the body. So they'll rather believe a machine that you can plug in that's made from plastic and glass and wires. They'll trust that before they trust a human being. And it's kind of backwards. Right. But because there are false positives with those MRIs. But I think what you're saying, people say it's the imagination. It's because we don't have a machine to measure it yet. We will. And then it'd be like, oh, you know. But yeah, what he, everything, listen, I'm hearing more and more like on Instagram and these little snippets of people saying everything is energy, everything is vibration. That was his viewpoint you know, 50 years ago. So, for example, one of the charts he did, and when I do this next book, it'll be in there. Yay! Did you hear that, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> I am. It's on the record. Yeah, I'm getting all the tapes transcribed because there's hundreds of these tapes and it's just physically impossible for me to go through them but he would he had charts where he would measure the vibration of each organ in the body so uh, I don't have it in front of me but the liver would vibrate at this optimally and if it vibrated at this it was a sick liver or the heart or the brain etc and he measured these vibrations with with the pendulum and then what he would do is if someone came into him, let's say they had cirrhosis of the liver, or they didn't even know, but he would find it. And he would say, okay, what is the vibration of the liver now? And let's say it was 300, when ideally it should be 1,200. So he would ask permission. He never healed without asking permission. He would ask permission, can I raise the vibrations of this liver? and say yes or no, because there's also people's karma involved in their illness, and there are times he could not cross that line. Can I raise it? Okay, how high can I raise it? Because, you know, maybe putting their liver back to 
youthful levels, optimal youthful levels, would be too much. Maybe the structure of the liver, if they were aged or whatever, couldn't handle that. So he had to ask permission, how far can he go? Oh, I can go to 750. So he would then raise the vibration of the liver to 750, and that would be a major part of the person's healing process. He also charted the vibration of words. So because now I used to think like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He would say words are powerful. Um, words carry vibrations and words have consequences, which as a young man, I thought was ridiculous. And now it's very, very true. And so he would, he had a chart of the words, the vibration of each word, so that you could choose your vocabulary and how you spoke in a, to aim for a higher frequency. And that is something we should all really aim for. It's a little bit of a mind game to monitor your words before you speak. And that old saying, think before you open your mouth, couldn't be more true. And you don't want to do harm to yourself and you don't want to do harm to anybody else. And I really feel that if you, once you step into that frequency or current of a higher vibration and you nourish it, it will carry you along and things will open up in your life in a very much easier and positive manner. And people, sometimes I see a friend I haven't spoken to in years and we start having a conversation and I'm just, I'm like, how did I not see this before? And they are just riddled with negativity and doubt. And I know their life is a mess and I have to hold on and just like say, listen to what you're saying you are manifesting this life for yourself with your thoughts that then you're expressing in words. So yeah, it's a, it sounds simple. It's not simple. It's something that really requires a lot of attention, but it's critical if you want to have a really productive life. Mm. I love that. Yeah. Thank you. And thinking about the spoken word, the written word and it makes me also think about your artwork. So you are a very accomplished artist and this is how you work with consciousness and your pieces are amazing, but they actually are carrying frequency as well. And I would love to talk a little bit about your process and, and what you can share about how you're working, you know, maybe even like not always consciously, but I know you're aware of it, but how you're working, you know, through your art to help people. Well, thank you for that. Yes. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist because I was always looking at pictures of Egyptian temples and this magical language, even though a lot of the language is accounting how many bales of grain they had or how much beer they stored for the winter. But there is also a huge metaphysical aspect about the afterlife in the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And I was just fascinated. And my father painted and he photographed. And he always felt that being an artist was like a magician because artists make things that weren't there before. And they're curious. And back in the days of realistic painting, the Rembrandt, 
there was no first photography and those paintings look like miracles, like, wow, you know, look at this person, they look real or the scene looks real. And we just didn't have photographs. Now we have photographs, so art goes somewhere else. But when I was younger, I was in Nepal and I had met these Buddhist monks and they were making little paintings of Buddha that are called tankas. And these tankas, they look like pictures, you know, you see tankas, I mean, you see pictures of Buddha in gift shops, a picture of Buddha and, and the bodhisattvas around him and the same cross leg, very pretty. But theirs have a very specific energy and they create them with an intention that these will give a blessing to the viewer or some sort of spiritual aid. And I was really impressed by this. And I grew up with my father and he taught me a lot of things. And I thought, I love the idea of a really energetic art that can help people or influence people that's just not a bunch of paint thrown all over the canvas, but there's something else there. And I spent a lot of my life touring ancient sites temples and you know, sometimes you walk into these places and it's like holy moly the energy in there is just extraordinary and how did they do this because you go into these caves in India that are enormous and they're carved in such detail and they didn't have black and decker power cells back then and the power of faith to execute these works of art is extraordinary I don't know how they did it. Or you go to uh, these temples, whether they're in Lebanon or Egypt, and these columns that are, they weigh tons and they're 40 feet high. How did, you know, yeah, we love the explanation of the aliens with the spaceship lifted the columns in place, but something else is going on. Maybe it was aliens, but I think they, they had devised different ways. So, yeah, I mean, could they have used frequency? Yeah, possibly. To, Why not? We, yeah. we will use frequency eventually. We're getting yeah. there. Yeah. I decided that I wanted my art to, I'm not a Tibetan monk, but I wanted to imbue this frequency in it. And I think it's effective because people seem to feel it. I had a show in Miami last winter and people walked in and said, what's in this room? It, I don't even think they were seeing the pictures. They were just like, wow. And that's great. And we can all do that. I mean, I'm not any different from anybody listening to this, we all, as humans, we're built for miracles. And we all have that ability. So yes, I do try and do that with my art. And I remember years ago, I was very frustrated about something, somewhat angry. And a friend of mine who is an actress, she said, use it in your work. And I found a letter that I'd written to her 30 years ago. I said, no, I refuse to put anger in my work. It, this is not my therapy. I'm not throwing up in my art so that someone else can see my anger. I, I, I want to work on something else here and make my work positive. So, which I think is the function. Of, well, it was the function of religious art, but I think it really is the function of art. Oh, I love that. And. I'm curious about, like, how does color play in? Because in our last recording, you had some work behind you. And I remember this beautiful kind of indigo color, and it almost looked like a blueprint quality to mm. it. Because I think that the it was drawn with white. So maybe indigo was the background with white drawing. The, the other way. It was that. Oh, it, was it the other way? Yeah. Oh, okay. Drawn with 
So, but does color play, do you, are you intentional with color? Is it more intuitive? For many, many years, the work has been basically two-toned. It's been sort of black and white. Even if there's color, I think of them as black and white because I like the idea of, sometimes you look through these old spiritual journals and their diagrams of frequencies and energies. And you look at Tesla's drawings of, his ideas, they were always black and white. And there's something very appealing and mysterious to me about diagrams. And to me, the paintings, even if they're drawn with blue, with a white background, they're kind of black and white, they're two-toned. Mm -hmm. But the idea that uh, they're diagrammatic and that there's something that you can enter into and work through, as opposed to a pretty picture of a garden, because that's what it is, a pretty picture in a garden with some flowers. Um, intention about color, I, I think I have certain colors. The colors tend to be very subtle and muted. And I think in a way, it's the idea of a more ethereal experience for people. And I also like the work, and I thought about this the other night, I like the work to be a little bit spooky, not in a scary way, but spooky in a strange way. So it's slightly dislocating. And I said to someone recently, I said, listen, I give you the magic carpet. Where you go with it is up to you. And so that's how I see the work is like either sitting in a planetarium and you're looking up at the stars or a magic carpet ride and you can go wherever you want to go. Oh, I love that. I, there is something intriguing about the diagram piece, too. I mean, I'm, that, that launches me back into my childhood and being very intrigued by diagrams and, like, trying to figure things out from them and things. It's almost like a magic map or something mm -hmm. or like a treasure map, I guess. Yes, that's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah. Is there anything with your process that you can share in terms of like, do you feel any sort of connection with guides or with your dad or his guides or anything as you're working through? I know that the dream time is linked to what the final project product is in terms of your art. Is there anything you can share there? Yeah. And there is a process. I think the best paintings are if I've taken a nap before I go in the studio so I'm not quite awake and I'm a little bit fuzzy. I, my mind is cleaner. I'm not dealing with having read the news or talked to the phone company about something. And so the work is cleaner. Once the work starts, then some voice takes over and says, we need a DNA strand here or you need to put this here or I that I don't think I make those decisions. I think they tell me what to put where. And I just I'm kind of the secretary. I just kind of do it. And I just I'm just following orders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I think that most inventions and creative people and musicians certainly you kind of hear that. I'm not sure that I really wrote this music. I think this is, and art is one way to tap into a different stream of consciousness. And it, I think most artists 
do that. And I think you can tell from the work when the work has a certain energetic appeal to you. It's because it's come from that source. And you think about Thomas Edison, my gosh, inventing record players and movies and, well, electricity kind of stole from Tesla, but electricity. And where does that come from? Because those things didn't exist before. Right. It's like, on one hand, you know, you think, well, he thought it up, his brain. This brain is just a bunch of cells and tissue and some chemicals and water. So where is it? It's getting information. That's where it's coming from. And we are yeah. all getting information. Right. That's awesome. And speaking of electricity, that also pings an amazing part of the book, too, which is your how your father, how Arthur Ford communicated to your father to let him know that there was something that he wanted to get through to him. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I actually want to go back to when you mentioned your dream and you also said of the times that you feel someone's communicating with you, that they're touching you. Um, that is very common. You'll just feel a brush of your cheek and you'll think maybe it's a bug and you'll, but there is no bug. You're indoors mm -hmm. and um, so that you were feeling that. And if you on the website, which is walkingthroughwallsthebook.com, it's a little lengthy, but there's a little drawing of my father's face on there. And on there there's like little dots and names next to the dots. And those were the points where this, when the certain spirits wanted to get in touch with him, they would touch him here or they touch him here. So he knew when someone was touching him here, which doctor it was. So he could, it's like answering the phone with call, call answering. Yeah. yeah. Hi, Dr. Han. What is it? He knew. So when you're touched, it, it is a communication. Oh, um, so in terms of electricity, do we have time? I can tell who Arthur was. I have time. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. So let me just go back a little bit on Arthur. Arthur in the twenties, Arthur Ford was uh, a medium. And he worked through a guide named Fletcher, and he would give clairvoyant readings. And in the 20s, Harry Houdini had died. And before he died, he told his widow, I don't believe in clairvoyance or seances or mediums. It's all, they're all charlatans. But just in case I'm wrong, I'm going to give you a code. And it's made up of numbers and letters that is nonsensical. But if anyone comes to you and breaks this code, you know that I'm communicating with you from the beyond. So his wife, Bess, I think, put out a $10,000 reward for anybody who could break the code. And of course, $10,000 back then might have been a million, two million, who knows. Um, people were lining up to break the code and no one could because Bess knew what it was. Well, Arthur Ford did break the code. Now, there's a lot of people who said he faked it when you're in advance. I, I don't know. I wasn't there in the 20s, but I don't think he did. Uh, anyway, that launched his career, and he would have seances at Carnegie Hall. He worked with movie stars like Gloria Swanson, King of Greece. So he became this really famous clairvoyant. And in the late 60s, he was originally from Titusville, Florida. He moved back to Miami, and that's where my father connected with him. But Arthur, um, after he died, he established a signal with my father. So if 
the lights blinked three times. That meant Arthur's on the phone, so to speak, and calling. And we would be in a restaurant, we'd be in a movie, and the lights would blink three times. I'm 14 years old, and it's like, I'm believing it, but I'm also thinking it's a lot of nonsense. You know, I'm a bratty kid. I want to. I want to be normal. I don't want. I don't want some weirdo father. But so Arthur would signal and show up that way. So we'd be in a restaurant, and we're talking and having dinner, and all of a sudden the lights blink. I would see him. Oh, Arthur's here. So he would take out a pen and paper, and he would just start writing down. Sometimes it was about me. And I didn't like that because he would say, oh, Arthur's saying that you were blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> What a tattletale. Yeah, Arthur, <laughs> go away. So I kind of learned early on it's better to be honest, not get called out later. So I'm really honest as a result. I always tell the truth. <laughs> but the reason that Arthur would blink through the lights is that he said <clears throat> electricity is a really, it's not a very powerful medium. It's very low current. And he said, what we do is we actually have to lower our frequency and then we can interrupt the electricity and let you know that we're here. But otherwise we are operating at such a high frequency, we can't connect with you because you can't receive. We're way out there at this point. And they have to, it's a lot of work for them to it's like um, speaking another language to someone. You have to translate it in your head and then it comes out Japanese or Spanish. So they had to go through this process. But I know when my mom died, we were asleep and all of a sudden, like two o'clock in the morning, all the lights in the apartment turned on. And I knew instantly it was my mom and I knew that was her sense of humor. Like, oh, this is funny. Let's wake Philip up. <laughs> Let him know I'm here because I don't want to make an entrance just like at nine o'clock in the morning when everything else is going on. I want the stage on me. So um, that's what they do. So a lot of times they'll be, and we certainly experience a lot of electronic disturbances the first time we try to record this. So when you see the lights blink, stop for a moment and ask, okay, who's here? What do you want to let me know? Or if they touch you, you know, just... Don't walk by it. Just pay attention. Because, and you may not hear the first five times. It may take ten times. But eventually, you will open up that channel. Because it's all rusty and clogged with our daily thoughts. And once you open that up, then they'll be hanging around. Yeah, that's it's incredible. Wow. Thank you for taking us through that. And... Thank you so much for taking us through all of this and for writing that book. And thank you in advance for book two. <laughs> I am working. I am working. And I will say that I appreciate the way you led this conversation because you got me to sort of say more than I normally say. And it was very easy. And I hope this is helpful to your audience because, like I said, we all have a lot of work to do. And it doesn't, it's not like going to work or cleaning up the garden or you know, fixing the roof. This is kind of invisible work, but it's more important than anything. And um, if we can get more and more people to do the work, 
And they don't need to go to a guru. They don't need to study anything. They can just start cleaning out their thought process, watching their thoughts, and saying, you know, they want to connect to that positive battery. And I think we can make a lot of progress that way. Mm, beautifully said. How can people connect with your work, Philip? On the paintings, there's a website called philipsmithart.com. And it's Philip with one L, because if they type in two L's, they'll never get there. And then the book is uh, Walking Through Walls, the book.com. And uh, it's still for sale on Amazon. Wonderful. Yes. And I will just say for the 900th time, please, everybody go read this. You will not be sorry. It's so awesome. This is such a great book. And thank you so much, Philip, for being here. As I mentioned before, we started a recording. You know, you kind of ground that energy that you are and that comes through you through your paintings. This is how I do it is, you know, getting the voices um, and we're here at a very auspicious time, new moon. We've got the solar eclipse happening tomorrow. So we're in this, you know, you and I, as we're recording this, we are in this high vibe state. You know, the conversation itself already had that, but we're also carrying what is present at this time while we'll while we're recording. So I really appreciate you being here and giving us your time and your energy and your wisdom. What a joy and an honor. Well, thank you. This was a beautiful conversation. And thank you for doing the work you do because by, by educating people on all aspects of who we are as humans and our consciousness, we will make that progress. And I know a lot of times it seems very dark out there. And it is dark. That's the yin and yang of life. And we can rise above and move on. And uh, it's important that we carry light for everybody. Mm, so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.